I think a few of the kids have been watching one too many Gangnam Style videos is what I, I think I saw a little bit of something. I, I'm not real, real sure. And here's where they play the parent game. Where's my mom? I see my mom. No, bye. So we'll see how that works. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Mr. Tim. Appreciate it. We're about to take up our tithes and offerings, so if you need to prepare yourself for that, this is where those connection cards will go in a chicken bucket that's about to go by your row and also your tithes and offerings. And if I could just kind of tie all that in even to the season that we're in, uh, I don't know if you've had this experience yet. Hopefully you have in your heart, but when you're buying a gift for somebody at this time of year, sometimes uh, you personally get invested in that gift. There's just kind of an excitement and kind of a joy. It's your way of trying to express that you love somebody and that you're trying to honor them in some particular way in this gift. And so, you know, you could be very thoughtful in those sorts of things. And I would just want to tie that to our tithes and offerings that as you give to the Lord Jesus Christ, I would like you to do so. I'm hoping that you'll do so in a way that honors him and that has you personally invested in it in a way that says, I love you. It's not just a flippant, pragmatic, hey, we've got to pay the bills, we've got to do this. I mean, but no, this is a moment that can be considered rightful worship as we give an offering that we do so both in love and in honor. So let's just pray and ask God to bless that for us. Father, we come to you and are grateful for the blessings you've given to us. And now we wish just to honor and to bless and to say that we love your son. And in that, we want this moment to be an expression of that, to express our trust and our faith and our humility. So receive our gifts and use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And while the buckets are going around, uh, let me also, fourth and fifth graders, uh, you're dismissed to your class too. So fourth and fifth graders, if you want to head on out to your class, you can make your way onto there. This is the fourth week of our series, Miracle on Don Moyer Avenue. So for weeks now, we've been talking about the fact and the reality that our God did not retire from the miracle business. That there's nothing in the Bible that would ever point to or suggest that our God would sometime, someday, no longer be involved, even in a very personal, real level, in our lives. That the God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and in that, He is a great and mighty, amazing miracle worker. And because of that, we should anticipate and expect and to step out into faith and to ask for the miracles that we need to see in our life, that when there's a situation in our life that we need God to break in in a supernatural way, that we shouldn't hesitate to do that, but just to step forward in faith and to do that. And so as a church for the last three weeks, that's what we've been doing, and over 500 miracle requests have been filled out by you over the last three weeks. In fact, you could see them on the... Uh, on the boards next to me, or on the sides of me, there are little sheets of paper with over 500 things that people here have said, God, we need you to break in in this way, either in our marriage or in our finances, and all sorts of different things. We also talked in this series the second week about sometimes, though, when we ask God for something, when we ask him for a miracle, when we ask him to move in a major way, sometimes we feel like he's not listening to us, that our prayers aren't making it beyond the ceiling, that we've got this idea or sense that God doesn't see, he's not at least, at least it's going unanswered, and there's a waiting posture that we find ourselves in. And let me tell you, it can be discouraging by way of faith to be in that waiting posture, but what you need to know is everybody's been there. Like it's almost a universal experience among God's people that there's been some point, some time in their life where it feels like they're waiting on God. They're waiting for him to answer something that has been asked. But what Jesus reminds us in Luke 18 is don't give up asking. He gives us explicit permission to nag 
God, to just pester him so much with your request that he finally gives it to you for no other reason than maybe just to shut you up, and that's okay. And also, what we find is last week we talked about the very intimate link between faith and God's power, that the most favorable conditions that we can find ourselves for God to act in a powerful way in our life is when we put ourselves in a position that requires God to show up or we're in serious trouble. Like, we're so out there in some particular way in our life that if God doesn't come and rescue us, then we're not getting back. And those are the times that we usually see God showing up. And Jesus even encourages us because we tend to be insecure about our faith. And we, we tend to have doubts that pop into our head. And it's very easy to discount ourselves and to think, well, I, don't, I just don't know if I have the faith for that. But Jesus gives us good news, and he tells us that, listen, if you have faith even the size of a mustard seed, which, I mean, it's so small, that is enough to be effective. And so Jesus encourages it. And, so, and for me, it's like, well, I've got that. I mean, I still have doubts. I still have questions. I still have things I struggle with. I might not be like a gigantic uh, you know, person of faith, but I at least have a mustard seed-sized faith, and that is all that Jesus says is enough. And so we want to move on here and conclude our series on Miracle on Dahmer Avenue. Now, this might come as a shock to you, but um, I have an opinion on just about everything. Uh, you name it, whatever the topic, I've probably got an opinion about it. If not, I'll make one up and sound confident in the midst of it just by bringing, I mean, and so it most likely some of you are the exact same way. We go have lunch and talk for hours about our opinions on everything. And it's always bugged me when people say this to, like, you know, you think your opinion's always right. To which my answer is, well, of course I do. That's why I have the opinion. Like, who holds an opinion that they think is wrong, right? Like, nobody does that. If you have an opinion, you believe that it's right, correct? Right, isn't that right? Now, if you want to say, when you have a strong opinion, you have a hard time listening to other opinions, that I understand. But that's a far different thing than somehow being criticized that I think my opinion is right. Well, of course I think my opinion is right. That's why I have it. And I don't even mind sharing my opinions with God. I mean, I know he's God, so this isn't like some contest as to who in the end is really right. But I don't have any problem in my spiritual life having a conversation with God, letting him know my opinion on things. I think, God, you should do this, and I think it should go down like this, and I think this. In fact, I'm even a little encouraged in the scriptures. When I'm, what, I just love the story. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a story out of Exodus chapter 32 with Moses. I don't know if you remember the story, but the Israelites have have put together the golden calf and worshiped that. And God is so angry and so upset, he's ready to kill them all. Like, he's just going to wipe out the Israelites. Like, just, I'm going to kill them all. And he says to Moses, and then I'm going to start all over again with you. Now, Moses in this moment, he could, if he had any pride in him at all, could have said, really? Like, my family line from now on is going to be like, I mean, he could have just stepped forward. Like, but he doesn't. Here's what Moses begins to make an argument with God. Like he just has this, he just starts to share with God his thoughts, his opinions, his arguments. And so this is what Moses says. Moses says, you know, God, I, I'm not sure that's a good idea. I mean, if you wiped out all the Israelites, do you know what people would say about you? I mean, do you, you just delivered your people from Egypt, and you delivered them from that slavery. And what will happen is the Egyptians and everyone around will say that God only did that to destroy his own people. In the and so he makes this argument with God. And then it says in verse 14 of Exodus 32, it says that, God actually changed his mind. Like he, it's like he listened to Moses and thought, that's actually a good point, Moses. I've changed my mind, and it tells us that God relented. So just based on that, when I talk to God, I feel at times like I'm always making arguments about why I think it should go this way or that way. Now, right now, my wife and the staff here at Living Stones is rolling their eyes thinking, Sam's making an argument again, is he? Yeah, yeah, we hear that all the time. But don't tell God I told you this, but let me give you, there is a danger in being very confident that you know exactly how something is supposed to go. 
And that is, if it goes down differently than how you think it should go, one of two things either happen. Either one, you're offended by what happens because it's different than what you thought it should be. Or two, and even worse, you can't see it because you were blind to the reality that it could be different than what you thought. Now, this is especially true in the making miracle request business. Like, we've got over 500 things that we're asking God for, for miracles in our life. And my guess is when somebody takes out a sheet of paper and says, I really, God, my marriage is not okay, I need a miracle in my marriage, that the person writing it has in their mind a very good idea of exactly what they mean by that. So if it's the wife writing it down, she might have in her mind exactly how this, is, how this ought to go, how it's going to go down, what she really means. Even she says, I, may, I need a miracle in my marriage. What she really is thinking is, God, I need you to supernaturally turn my husband into an outward expressive individual who loves to shower with both compliments and affection nonstop while sharing the load of child rearing and housework and at the same time being the perfectly giving lover in addition to giving him a supernatural longing to sit and watch romantic comedies in the evening after a long day of work. And if he could lose the beer gut, that would be great too. Like, that's what's in her mind. If it's the husband and he needs a miracle in his marriage, he might be praying, God, would you supernaturally turn my wife into a sex machine? And that's pretty much all he's asking for in terms of miracles. That's all he really wants, and that's what he means when he writes marriage. That when you become so convinced that you know exactly what it looks like or what God needs to do to perform a miracle in your marriage, if he does it differently, it's possible that either, one, you're offended by it, or two, you didn't even see it because it went down differently than what you'd expected. Does that make sense? Like when you write down on your sheet of paper, the miracle I'm asking for is a job, there's a good chance that when you wrote that down, you knew exactly what you meant when you were praying for a job. It's in this particular field that you want, with this kind of pay that you want, with these benefits, just the right location and distance from your house. It has the right dress code for you. And they can be so certain that when God does answer your prayer for a job, but it's different than how you thought or expected, it's quite possible that either, one, you're offended by it, or two, you're so blind to that possibility that you miss it when it takes place. I would say, just from my own personal experience, Hold lightly with God your own opinion. I'm not saying don't share it with him, but hold it lightly enough or carry your own assumptions lightly enough on how you think it's supposed to go down or how God is supposed to act or how God is supposed to pull something off because in the end, God might be graciously answering your prayer in a way you didn't even expect. In fact, even though you can't see it at the moment, he may be answering your prayer for a miracle way better than what you asked for or hoped, or imagined. That he's so good, and he's so gracious, and he's so kind, sometimes he knows what you're expecting and what you want, but he recognizes and realizes, no, I'm going to answer this. It will just be in a different manner than what you assume, because I've got something way better in mind and way better in store for you and your future and your life. Carlos Whitaker is a worship leader who's telling the story about uh, finally getting an opportunity to take his kids for the very first time to Disney World. And so you've probably seen those commercials where, you know, they let the kids know, we're going to Disney World, and they'll go crazy. So we thought it'd be kind of neat to kind of, you know, mess with them a little bit and kind of get that experience. 
So what he said to them was, was that day that they were going to go to Disney World, they were really going to go to a bouncy house. You know, like they got the inflatable bouncy houses, those sorts of things. So they get in the car, he pulls out his iPhone, and he pushes the button for the Siri, you know, the woman who keeps talking to you on the phone. And he says, Siri, give me the directions to the supersonic bounce house. To which she responds, she can't find the directions to the supersonic bounce house. Then he then says, well, never mind then, Siri, give me directions to Disney World. Well, he's got three kids, and the two oldest daughters, when they realized that instead they were going to Disney World, just went crazy. In fact, here's a picture. He took a picture of what they looked like (laughs) when they just found out that we're going to Disney World. Like, oh, my goodness, we're going to Disney World. The problem, though, was he's got a younger son named Losiah whose heart was set on a bouncy house. (laughs) So when he found out they weren't going to the bouncy house, this is what he looked like. And Carlos was telling this story about what do we do? Like, what's the, this, he's, he had a meltdown of epic proportions. Like that moment where my kid, at this moment, having a, a meltdown about going to Disney World because he'd rather go to a bouncy house. And they had uh, his, his stepmother was there, uh, Grandma Sherry. So in the end, what they decided to do is Grandma Sherry took Losiah to the bouncy house while Carlos and his wife took the two girls to Disney World. And so this is the picture taken about the exact same time, 35 miles away from each other. One enjoying Disney World and Losiah at a bouncy house because that's what he had his heart set on. But in the moment, though, this sometimes happens to us in our spiritual life where God wants to give us Disney World, but we're set on a bouncy house and can't get it out of our mind that God is wanting to give us something way better than we ever hoped or imagined to even ask of him, but we're stuck in the mode and the mentality of bouncy house, and then we get all upset when he's trying to offer us Disney World. And sometimes when we're asking for these miracles, what we need to do is have our eyes open to the reality that God might be doing something way better, even though we can't see it, because we're so confident that God needs to act like this and do it just in this manner. I used to think to myself, man, if I could, like, literally see Jesus perform a miracle, wouldn't that be awesome? Like, I mean, like, 2,000 years ago in the days when Jesus was walking physically on the face of the earth to watch him do a miracle, I mean... To be on that hillside when he was teaching and then everybody got hungry and this little boy hands him just a few fish and a few loaves of bread and to watch Jesus take that and then to feed over 5,000 people. Could you imagine being in that audience to see that? I mean, it'd just be incredible. Or there's even stories, you know, you got people who are struggling through demon possession and some of those stories are powerful encounters. Like, I'd love to be that, that one where they come on the other side of the boat and there's a man in the cemetery who's demon-possessed and, I mean, just crazy. And the next thing you know, he has an encounter with Jesus, and he's sitting there in his right mind. I mean, could you imagine being there to watch that entire experience? Or I'd love to also be in the audience where, you know, you're standing there in front of the tomb, and that stone is over the, over the tomb, and Jesus yells out to Lazarus, who's been dead now for four days, come out. I mean, could you imagine the nervous awkwardness of, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, and then watching a man who has been dead for four days all of a sudden step right out of that tomb. And in my head, I think to myself, man, if I could have just been there to see it, I would so believe. Like, you want to talk about, like, gigantic faith. I would have such huge faith if my eyes could literally have seen Jesus do those sorts of things. I would have such confidence in him. I mean, how could you not is what I think in my head. Yet, when you read through the scriptures, what you find is, there are actually people who watch Jesus do miracles all the time, and they don't have any faith in him. Like there's people who watch, who are right there, and get to see Jesus perform these amazing miracles, and they walk away, and they don't put any faith in him. They don't believe in him at all. In fact, sometimes it says they get offended. 
And we saw this last week when Jesus goes to his hometown in Mark chapter 6 in the synagogue. The people watch his teachings. They hear about his miracles. They've actually seen a few things. And it says in the end of verse 3, it says, and they took offense at him. Like they're watching Jesus, and in the end, rather than putting their faith and trust in him, they get offended. Or even that story about Lazarus that I told you I'd love to be a part of. Like there were actually people in the crowd who watched Lazarus rise from the dead, and they got upset, and they went and tattled on Jesus. Like, well, we got to go back and tell the Pharisees to put a stop to this. So that's what you read in verse 46 of John 11. They went and, and told on Jesus. Well, we got to put an end to this. And then later in verse 57 of John chapter 11, it says that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were looking for a way then to arrest Jesus to put a stop to this nonsense. Like God is performing an amazing miracle, and it's so out of what they expect or what they think or how they think it's supposed to go down. They're trying to put a stop to it. In fact, they're going to put a stop to it. In chapter 12, it tells us they come up with a plot to kill Lazarus. <laughs> the man who was just raised from the dead, they're going to try to kill him, it says in John 12, verse 10. And then you quickly begin to realize that God can be at work and if it is in a way that doesn't square with our expectations or our desires or even in line with our predetermined values, it, we could easily miss it and be blind to it or be offended by it. And sometimes it feels like what we need to attach to our prayers for a miracle is probably this little addendum. It, it, just say this. Just ask God for a miracle you need, but then say, oh, and God, would you please open up my eyes then to see when you answer this miracle? Give me eyes to see when it is that you answer this miracle, don't let me miss it. Don't let me be so confident how it's supposed to go or how it's supposed to happen, how it's supposed to go down, that when it does, when you actually answer this, I've missed it because I'm either offended or I'm blind to it. That we need somehow God to supernaturally, one miracle is just to open our eyes to the reality of what God is doing. And you'll see this phrase, open their eyes. You'll see that phrase over and over again in Scripture. This idea of God opening their eyes so they can see realities that they couldn't see before. One powerful story is in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 6. The prophet Elisha is in serious trouble because everything he prophetically speaks against the king of Aram is bad. So finally the king of Aram just says, that's it, I'm going to kill him. Like we've had enough. Get the army, get the chariots. We're going after Elisha to kill him. Well, Elisha and his servant one night, is they're in their tent sleeping, and the next morning, the servant of Elisha comes out of his tent, and he sees the king of Aram, his army, his chariots coming after them to kill them. So, of course, he's freaking out, and he says to Elisha, hey, there's an army coming after us to kill us. And Elisha kind of, you know, flippantly says, well, there's more with us, and there's more with them. And the servant's looking around, are you drunk? <laughs> it's the two of us. There is an army coming at us. And so this is what it says in verse 15 of 2 Kings 6. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early in the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prays this prayer. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire that were all around Elisha. You see what's happening here? He couldn't see into that spiritual realm. He couldn't see what God was already doing, what God was already at work. And Elisha saw it. And so Elisha says to his servant, don't worry, there's more with us. <laughs> Are you and he asked God, open his eyes so he can see. And all of a sudden the servant can see, oh my goodness, there is a whole army of angel I mean, chariots of fire all around. And so they pray, Elisha prays to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. And so God does. He strikes them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And you'll see moments like this in Scripture where God opens their eyes to see what they couldn't see. 
And sometimes it's for us the same thing. We need God to open our eyes to see where he's at and what he's doing in a realm that we just can't see. That we might expect it to be like this, but no, we need God to don't let us be blind, let us see. Or, or in the New Testament, I don't know if you remember the story of, of Stephen getting stoned. It's at the end of chapter 7 where, I mean, they're rushing at Stephen and they're stoning him and he, he's, almost, you know, he's almost dead. The first person to give their life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, God opens up his eyes so he could see into heaven for a moment. This is what it says in verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. Could you even imagine? He's able to see the glory of God. And not only that, he sees Jesus standing. The only time that Jesus is ever mentioned standing. It's always seated by the right hand. The only time we see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so Stephen says, look, he says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I said, no one else saw that. No one, I mean, one like they looked up, oh, yeah, there he is. I mean, no one else got to see that. It was just Stephen who, in a moment, God opened his eyes so he could see a reality that he couldn't have seen prior. And sometimes that's what we need God to open up our eyes. Or let me give you one other, one other story. It's after the resurrection of Jesus. You remember he's walking on that road to Emmaus, and there's some disciples that are with him. They're having this great conversation, and they don't know it's Jesus. Like, they're talking about Jesus, and it's Jesus who is with them, and they don't know it. They don't recognize it. They have this great conversation. He opens up, Jesus opens up the word to them. They understand things they would have never understood. And Jesus is going to go on, but they say to him, no, no, stay here and eat with us. Stay here with us. Eat with us. And finally, Jesus says, okay, I'll, I'll, we'll stay and eat. So they're sitting at the table, and they're eating. And the Bible tells us in Luke 24 that Jesus breaks bread, and it says in verse 31, and then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. Could you imagine being there? Just poof, he's gone. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? This was the same concept, right? When Jesus opened up their eyes so they could recognize him. And that's what we need sometimes in our request and miracles. And God, would you just make sure our eyes are open that we can see when you answer our prayers? Because ultimately what we'll have to yield to in the sovereignty of God is that sometimes he does things that we just would not. He has thoughts that we don't have. He, he has knowledge that we don't have. His ways at times aren't anything that we'd ever expect. In fact, this is what the, the prophet Isaiah tells us in 55 verse 8, where it's God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. And so it's very important to grasp this concept because it will help us move then in humility. And that humility will open up the ability then to see God at work. Now, I don't mind telling God my opinions. I don't even mind sharing and arguing why I think God should do it like this and it should go down like that. But in the very end, I want to at least approach it with enough humility that recognizes, but you're still God and I am not. And your ways are not my ways and your thoughts are not my thoughts. In fact, what kind of a God would God be if we were really smarter than him? I, I I'm not sure I want to worship a God who needs me or is dependent on my advice for anything. I mean, I know how everything is supposed to work, and I know how everything is supposed to go down, and I know what, if I know what God's next best move is, then is God really God? Because it sounds in the end like, I think I'm God. I mean, if God needs me to tell him what he should do next, and that puts me in the position of being God. And that's really kind of one of my problems I have with what I see today in contemporary spirituality as a smorgasbord religion. Kind of it's like a buffet where I like a little bit of Jesus' teachings. I don't mind that. Put that on your plate. And there's some stuff in Hinduism I really like. I put that on my plate. And a little bit of Buddhism I like. I put that on my plate. And so, you know, I mean, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. And you just kind of, those pick and shoot. In the end, who's in charge of all that? I mean, you are. It's 
you get to decide based on your thoughts, your way of life, your thinking, what, you, what is for you true. And in my mind, it in, puts, in the end, puts you in the posture of being God. And I'm not sure we're good enough to, to really think we should be worshipped. Often because God can see what we can't, because he knows what we don't, he does things differently than we might think or expect or prefer. And I want us to be humble enough to trust God in it so we don't miss it. Or humble enough in it so that we don't become offended when we ask God for the miracle of striking our neighbor dead, like we ask. But instead, he removes the resentment that's in your heart. See, I was expecting this and asking for this, but God, what God did is another miracle. He began to take away the bitterness and the anger and the resentment that I've been holding on for years. That I want to be humble enough that when I'm praying and asking God to work this miracle to change the attitude of my rebellious child, don't be offended or shocked if, if he comes in and he does work a miracle, but it is to remove the dysfunctional exasperation that was coming from you that drove your child into rebellion in the first place. And now if we could connect this to the birth of Jesus. I'm going to assume that I don't need to say a lot, a whole lot, in terms of you appreciating that no one in their right mind would write this script for introducing the Prince of Heaven to the earth. Now, sometimes 2,000 years later, we kind of be, we're sentimental about it. They're on our Christmas cards. We go see pageants and plays and all those sorts of things. But when you really step back and think about it, this is a ridiculous script. I mean, if I were God, which I'm not, I would do it totally different. Like, when I was going to send my one and only son to the earth, like, I'm not picking some backwoods setting of Bethlehem or Nazareth. Like, if, I, if God wants my opinion and my advice, I'd say, oh, go big time. We're going right to Rome. Like, let the Son of God be born right there next to Caesar to show everybody. And at least, if you're not going to Rome, at least go to Jerusalem. But Bethlehem? I mean, that's like the Argus of, I mean, I mean no offense to Argus. I'm not, I mean, I, right? I mean, we love Argus. This is not picking But you get what I'm saying, right? It's like, Bethlehem is just so small and just kind of, there's not even a Walmart in Bethlehem is what I'm trying to say. I mean, when you think about even this couple, let's talk about Joseph for a moment. I mean, he's most likely a carpenter because Jesus was a carpenter. That's usually how it worked where you followed in the tradition, the line of your family and, and your father, and, which is not a bad thing. I'm not picking on that, but I mean, he's clearly not a nobleman. He's not rich. He's not famous. He isn't prominent in any particular way. If I were picking somebody I would, picture, I would pick somebody who had some notoriety and fame. Let's kick this off right. And then let's talk about Mary for a moment. Let's talk about this whole unwed teenager thing and this whole story about a virgin birth because that's not going to cause any scandal and gossip in the local community. Yet this seems to be our script. And then and we're not talking about like sanitary conditions of hospitals. They've got a, the Son of God is going to get, will be born in a barn and placed in a, saliva-covered feeding trough that animals use. This is not in any way anything I would do if I were God and had to pick how to bring the Prince of Heaven. At least the angels will get a better deal, right, because they're going to put on a concert. Like, the curtains of heaven are going to open up, and they're going to sing in the, oh, you know, the Son of God is here. And so they got this big moment, right, the big concert of heaven, the curtains will get pulled back, and all the angels are looking past the floodlights, and they're looking at the audience, and it's just a couple shepherds in a field. It's like, are you serious? We've been practicing for centuries for this moment. They're all looking at each other. Who was in charge of promotion? This is, this is. It seems at every turn, God in his own humility. I mean, picture this in your mind. God in his own humility is doing everything that he can so that even the most vulnerable and lowly would have access to his divinity. 
at every turn, he is graciously refusing to overwhelm the very world he so desperately wants to love with his glory. He's voluntarily giving up all of the glory that he's rightfully entitled to so that we can approach. Because if God were to show up in all of his Shekinah glory, I mean, it would be so overwhelming we wouldn't be able to stand up underneath it. We wouldn't be able to bear it. And, and God himself humbles himself and voluntarily sheds himself of all of that and says, no, the script that I'm writing, unlike what anyone would ever pick or choose or suspect, is going to go down like this so that the lowliest and those who are the outcast and those who feel like they are on the outside and the knots will be able to come close. You know how many years the Jews were praying that God would finally send the Messiah and the Savior, the Rescuer and Redeemer? You know, do you know that the religious leaders of the teachers of the law had poured over and scoured every messianic prophetic passage they could find? I mean, they knew, oh yeah, here in Jeremiah, this is talking about the Messiah when he shows up. Here's the Isaiah text. Here's the one in Micah. I mean, they know these texts. They prayed about it. They've committed themselves to it. They knew it. And even in some seasons, there was great apocalyptic intensity to it, like Talk about like December 21st with the Maya, I mean that whole apocalyptic sense. They had an entire system and doctrine established as to what it would look like when God broke into the earth and provided a Messiah. And when it happened, everyone missed it because they didn't have the eyes to see that God was working this out in a different manner than they suspected. And in fact, some of them were offended by the idea that God would work in this way rather than how they thought they couldn't see it. They were blinded by their own expectations and pride of thinking that insisted that God had to do it like this or that he would never do it like that. That's just crazy. I mean, the guy who owned the barn, the cave that they were there, do you think he ever knew, like ever in his life, ever realized that the Messiah of Israel was born on his property? I wonder, like when Joseph and Mary are taking Jesus into Bethlehem to, to register for the census, like just think about the hundreds of people that they probably interacted with, that they bumped shoulders with, had minor conversations, you know, where are you from, and where are you at now? I mean, did any of them ever know that, that the baby that Mary was, the, oh, your baby's so cute. Did, they, did any of them ever see, that's the king of kings and the lord of lords. Like that's the only son of God here on earth. It's, it's like they all missed it, thousands of people. There's a story that's told about Joshua Bell. He's a famous violinist, like packs out concert halls, just a, a brilliant violinist. And one night, he played in a sold-out uh, performance uh, in Boston and then went on to Washington, D.C. and decided, just, just kind of on a whim, two nights later, after the sold-out crowd in Boston, he decided to play in the Washington, D.C. metro station, just a 45-minute concert. The picture you're seeing here is him in the subway. He's holding in his hands a 3 million dollar Antonio Stradivarius. That's the instrument he's got. In the subway for 45 minutes, Joshua Bell holding a three million dollar violin puts on a 45 minute performance and only six people even stopped to listen. Not like six people recognized him, only six people even stopped to listen that there was a prodigy violinist in their midst holding a three million dollar Antonio Stradivarius that Jesus, the king and savior of the world, when he arrived on the earth, very few had the eyes to see the miracle that God was working. Now, not, not, not everybody was blind. There were a few that did have their eyes opened. In fact, I don't know if you remember, it's in the Gospel of Luke where they have to take Jesus on his eighth day after being born to the temple for the ceremony of circumcision. And so they walk in, and there's an old man in there named Simeon, who for whatever reason, God decided to give eyes to be able to see that this wasn't just another baby, because imagine how many babies are probably coming in the temple for circumcision every day. 
But Simeon had eyes from God to see, oh, this won't be just any baby. This will be the salvation of God's people. This is what it tells us in Luke 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to, child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in, the, in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's mother and father, they just marveled at what he said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. But just so you know, a sword will pierce your own soul too. See, Simeon could see what everyone else was missing. That this is no ordinary baby. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And even Mary, the mother of Jesus, she seemed to have an inkling that this isn't going to be just a cute story we'll tell and a cute baby on a Christmas card. She knew that something big was, has broken into the earth. Even though he's just a small baby, she knew that rulers are being toppled, that those who are on the top are being, becoming low, and those who are humble are being raised up. She'll say this after she finds out she's carrying the Christ child in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations are going to call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. That what we celebrate this morning is the reality that God has very graciously opened our eyes. And he's allowed us to see that Jesus of Nazareth is the Savior of the world. We celebrate Christmas because he's opened our eyes to the truth that the child that was born to Joseph and Mary would save God's people from their sins. We celebrate because our eyes can see, as Luke 1, 31 to 33 tells us, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So my prayer for you is that God will give you eyes to see. Not only the purpose and meaning of this week, because I know there's a lot that can distract us. There's a lot going on around us to divert our eyes and to look away, to be overwhelmed by the busyness or the amount of stress and the expectations relationally that, that we have. But that God will bless you with spiritual 2020 vision to see exactly what this is all about. And as we wrap up four-week series on Miracle on Donmore Avenue, that he might give you eyes to see how he will work that miracle out that you've asked from him, even if by the means and the method by which he does it is amazing, shocking, and unexpected. But may you see it and realize that our God is infinitely good. Amen? Let's stand. Let's praise him together.
sorry, there was a catastrophe. experience for you guys to see me tune my guitar. I got knocked off like after we finished the last song. <laughs> 